This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody. Hello there. I hope everybody is having a wonderful Sunday. Um, That's when I'm recording this. Um, A lot's been going on. So at the time of this recording, I've been back from Historicon uh, 2023 for about a week now. The con was awesome. All the next-gen stuff was great. Our room was filled um, most of the time. I had a great podcast with the Little Wars TV guys in case um, you you haven't got a chance to listen to that. I totally would. because it was a lot of fun. I was very loopy, though, at the time of recording, um, as were the other guys, because it was the end of the con. But um, trust me, uh, you, you'll get the vibe for the energy, uh, you know, if you give that that pod a, a whirl. All right. So you know who I am. So uh, Jared's here, um, even though it's weird to refer to myself in the third person. But I think you know who I am if you listen to this podcast. All right. So um, the guest for today. So... I'm at work one day um, at the Brunswick School, and it's very early. If my memory serves me right, it was like one of those days where I got in, um, you know, at six o'clock because I had the lesson plan. Um, and I go into the room where I do all of my uh, printing and such, and I see a simulation in the uh, printer. And for me, that always like perks my eyes and ears up. And it was about the Cold War. And I knew that it was one of my colleagues who must have been running it. But what it turns out is that he has a good friend. I'm going to introduce him right now. His his name is Dr. Thomas O'Toole. Um, He works at Cornell University. And within Cornell, and he's going to explain this far better than me, but within Cornell University, he's an executive director of different types of programming at something called the Brooks School. And it was actually... Uh, he who was coming in that day to kind of work with one of my colleagues running a simulation about the Cold War. It was the very end of the year. And if you're a teacher, and I know a lot of teachers uh, listen to this podcast, but you know how the end of the school year is. There's nothing better than going in um, with a really fun simulation to kind of end the year with a bang, so to speak. So uh, Thomas and I have been kind of chatting back and forth for quite a while now, and he's here on the podcast right now. Um, Thomas, hey. Thanks for having me, Jared. Oh, no, no problem. Do you go by Tom or Thomas? Tom is fine. All right, cool. I'll go. Or we'll, we'll, we'll definitely do that. So, um, yeah, Tom, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it. I know that um, we'll probably have a lot to talk about because I know you've been really busy for, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, the last six weeks in terms of your job. Yeah, I'm, I'm just coming up for air. Um, so I was, I was running a training program um, on behalf of the Department of State and the International Research and Exchange Board. Um, it's called the Mandela Washington Fellowship, um, where they bring um, cohorts of about 25 students um, in each institute. There are 28 institutes across the country um, for a six-week training program along three different tracks, uh, public management, business administration, and civic engagement. Um, and so it's it's kind of very intersectoral. Um, you know, you you've got folks that are, are surgeons and doctors and um, sustainability advocates and lawyers, um, but they're all coming here because um, you know the State Department's identified them as the next generation of change makers in Africa. Um, so they're here to kind of learn from us, learn from each other, and then build relationships 
um, that'll hopefully last them throughout their career. So we literally just wrapped that up this morning, um, and they're on the bus to DC right now for the the summit that kind of you know, is the culmination of the institute. Oh wow, that is both cool and very intense sounding. <laughs> it was a lot and, of work, but it was a lot of fun too. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I guess leaving the game stuff to the side just for one moment, because um, I know that for my listeners, they're going to be very interested in the kind of day-to-day things that you're doing uh, in this program. So as sort of the executive director, are you kind of in charge of that six-week program and you're sort of facilitating all the kind of people around you and the programs that all the participants are kind of doing? Yeah, so um, there was there was administrative director and then there was an academic director. Um, and so I, I kind of did a little bit of both for this institute. Um, so the, the institute itself covered five broad themes. Um, innovation and public management, vulnerability and resilience planning, um, infrastructure, project management and finance, uh, accountability and diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, and so I served as the lead instructor for the first week, which is kind of level setting everyone on kind of how public management works in the United States, um, giving them space to talk about, you know, from a comparative perspective, how things work in their countries, um, some of the opportunities and challenges that we're seeing here. Um, and so it just kind of like, you know, level sets everyone for the rest of the Institute. And then they get more into more specialized topics later on. So um, I was lead instructor that first week. And then um, I kind of, you know, built out the rest of the schedule um, based on their interests. Like I said, you know, we weren't actually notified until pretty close to the start of the Institute what their specific backgrounds were. Uh, so some of it's kind of like you build out this, this the bones, right? Um, you have the bones of the program and then you you flesh it out. Um, with more tailored content on whatever it is they're interested, you know, health, health, health inequality or um, sustainability or whatever. Um, and so some of it you're building on the fly. And this is our inaugural institute. This is the first time we've ever done it. Um, and I think we did pretty well. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And you still agreed to do this podcast on the day that you finished. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, like so I'm, cool. I, 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 I'm all in. Um, I, I love gaming. And so when yeah. you mentioned that you do a gaming podcast, I mean, I think I've probably been gaming in some fashion since I was three years old. Um, yeah. so I was, I was psyched to come on, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's been kind of around the clock for the past six weeks, not just teaching them, but I was driving around in a 15 passenger van, which is a lot more fun than it sounds. I mean, just, just like, I'm just the kind of person that likes to get my, my hands dirty with, with those kinds of things. And really, and I think that's how you build relationships, which was again, one of the, the points of the program. So it's, it turned out really well. No, hundred percent. All right. So clearly for our audience, this is going to be an interesting one because I feel like there's, there's a lot of different questions that need to be asked to kind of bring it all together. So, okay. So keeping gaming on one side for the moment, Here's my first question. So how did you get into this kind of work? Like if we can sort of go back in time, I know you have a whole slew of advanced degrees. How do you get into this kind of work? Why don't we start there? So I think I was always, well, first I I was always interested in law. Um, I think, you know, I was was a child of the 90s. I'm a first generation student. So I think that if you're a child of the 90s and a first generation student and your parents were addicted to shows like L.A. Law, you could either be one of two things. You could either be a doctor or a lawyer, right? And so right. <laughs> I hate the sight of blood. And so they were like, you, you really need to be a lawyer. And I said, okay. So, you know, I went to college and I, I did political science and I did international relations. And, you know, I, and I got involved with some campaigns and I did some local government work. And then, you know, like a good citizen, I went to law school and I went to Cornell Law um, after having worked, like I said, in, in local government for a while, I did some work for 
um, the White House. Um, so keep in mind, again, just just to, to you know, disclaimer, not this White House, not the last White House. It was a previous <laughs> White House. I'm not going to get more specific than that. But, sure. Um, yeah, just keep politics out of it. But no, you know, we try I, to do I, that. I really enjoyed topic. it. I enjoyed kind of American politics. But then, like a good citizen, I, I went to law school and I, I really didn't enjoy it. And it actually connects a lot to the, this this kind of like philosophy on gaming. I didn't enjoy it because I didn't have a lot of control on like what I was studying. It felt very workmanlike, and um, you know, and and I would I would have conversations in class and with faculty, and they were like, "Well, you're talking about public policy. You're not talking about law." Um, you know what I mean? And it, and so there, I didn't feel like there was a lot of latitude for control or creativity. And so I, I decided to switch to public policy. I, I kind of left after my first year of law school, um, gave up that salary, which was painful at the time, but it's okay now. Um, <laughs> and then I decided to go kind of more the first I got my MPA and then I, I decided I wanted to go on for um, my master's degree and my PhD. So um, I got my MPA um, and then I started um, an administrative position in the Master of Public Administration program, which is one of the programs that I run now. Um, decided that I really had a lot more questions that I wanted to ask um, and I wanted to learn more about um, political science and government and particularly political psychology, um, why people behave the way, the way they do in, in politics. And so then I went on to get a Master of Arts and then and a PhD and um, ultimately graduated to this position that I'm in now, which is um, Executive Director of Public Affairs Programming. So in this position, I oversee uh, the Master of Public Administration program, which is kind of like um, an MBA for for professionals that want to work in the public and nonprofit sector. So, you know, we train you know people that want to work for federal, state, local government, for international organizations, you know, the United Nations, um, or for nonprofit organizations, or in the private sector that um, in roles that would intersect with the public sector, right? So, like you know, highly regulated industries like shipping, logistics, um, healthcare. Um, technology. Um, you know, we're we're seeing a lot of hiring from, you know, Google, Yelp, the, these kinds of companies, um, just on kind of the regulatory side of things right now. Um, and then I just recently got promoted into this role of executive director for public affairs programming, which um, essentially supports senior leadership at the Brooks School in building out um, training programs. Um, so new degree programs, new training programs, um, certificate programs for government, corporate audiences. Um, and so that's what I've been in this role for the past year. And and this Mandela Fellows program that I mentioned earlier is kind of part of that portfolio. So, No, awesome. And um, so backing up for, for one moment, um, so are you teaching courses on a daily basis? Like, is that is that like kind of like something that you do uh, consistently? Yes. Um, so I teach a, I teach two public administration courses um, and, and they're just what they're called issues in public administration, which is kind of like the foundational course um, on it. You know, it's taught from a strategic planning perspective. But again, it's one of those level setting graduate survey courses that kind of runs the gamut. Like what's the scope and purpose of public management? It goes into resource management. Um, you know, how do you manage people and and money and technology? Um, and you can see kind of the gaming, like some of the, I'll talk about some of the games I was interested in later and it sort of feeds very well into that. And then strategy. I mean, a lot of the course, I would say a whole third of the course is devoted to strategy, strategic planning, because um, it's something that governments got really invested in over the past few decades. Um, it's something that, you know, is not really taught, you know, in, you know, in, in a lot of courses that you might take 
as an undergraduate in social sciences, right? It's something that usually most people learn on the job um, or in a graduate level program like this. Um, so I teach two, two courses. One is for our residential master's of public administration program. The other is for our executive master of public administration program. Um, and then I also teach a course on comparative public administration. So teaching is part of my sort of regular portfolio. Awesome. So you're really getting the best of both worlds, so to speak. You're doing the administrative stuff and then you're also kind of like doing, you know, doing the teaching and really kind of being in the trenches. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've been no, doing cool. that for, I would say, 20 years now. Gosh, and years going on and are you, years are you originally from, are you from the tri-state area? I am. I'm from the Catskills. Um, oh, cool. I love between, the Catskills. Yeah. So it's between here. Well, here is Ithaca, just for your audience. Yeah. Audience. It was between Ithaca and, and New York City, kind of what, what everyone in New York City would call upstate, but it's not really upstate. You know, upstate for us is like Watertown or whatever, right? But it's sort of in that really beautiful um, mountainous region between um, kind of the, the southern tier Finger Lakes and, and New York City. Gotcha. No, very cool. So, you know, it's funny, like talking about strategic planning, it just so happens that and I'm sure I'm, I'm sure that a lot of listeners are going to know this book, but um, the author's name is Freeman, and the that that like the book is just called Strategy. It's like mm -hmm. it's an. Have you ever read it? No. It's it's really awesome. But what I have made heard me, of it though. Yeah, yeah. What made me think of it um, is just the fact that from what I've gathered from this text, and I've read like Machiavelli, and I've read um, some of the other. Uh, particularly like military military philosophers like Clausewitz, you know, yeah. so many people like that. And it's funny that um, in almost every chapter, it just always comes up that strategy is just this amorphous thing. It's so yeah. hard to like actually define what that word means. And mm -hmm. what this book does uh, really well is it kind of shows how our perceptions about that word have changed over time, over the centuries, you know? So yeah, I, I'm new. curious what that's like to teach. Yeah, and it's new in, in public management. I mean, first of all, there's there's probably just as many ways to define public management, right? Like what that enterprise is. Um, and strategy is kind of the same, right? I mean, and strategy is very unique in the public sector because, um, you know, I spend the first couple of weeks of my class distinguishing what strategy means in the private sector versus the public sector and all the extra baggage that we carry into developing strategy um, in, in the public sector. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's part of the, you know, I guess skipping ahead. I mean, that's part of the reason why I think you know, simulations and role plays are so critical in the pedagogy for public management because there's just so much ambiguity yeah. um, in developing strategy. And so, I mean, everything that you do is essentially um, contingency planning, right? I mean, it's that that's kind of all you're doing. Yeah, totally. And and again, and I think it's time to get into the gaming component of this pod because I'm sure people are interested to see like how you kind of weave it in. But ultimately, like, I agree with you completely, um, especially in the sense that so many concepts in my own classroom, whether it's my course on warfare or, you know, just like a regular old, you know, ninth grade modern world history course, there's something about simulations where I could go on and on and on about a topic or I could give kids interesting activities or I could give them reading to do. It's one thing to read about these kinds of concepts and understand them. It's another to just let them play something and yeah. figure out what those concepts are on their own, you know? So on that note, um, so you said that you've been, you kind of have been gaming since you were real young. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so first off, I'll say like my, my, my conception of gaming, you know, I, I think we, we should probably level set what we mean by gaming, right? So like sure. when I think, when I think gaming, um, I go all the way back 
to these choose your own adventure books that I used to read as a kid, right? And I just love that. And it was that sense of control over kind of the outcome of what you were reading, which, um, you know, fed later into the kind of gaming that I was, I was attracted to. So I started there, right? Um, and then I kind of did with with friends, you know, some of the the stuff that, you know, um, was popular at the time, right? Dungeons and Dragons. And I remember there was like a Star Trek role-playing game that that we we got into. Um, and then we got into video games, right? Um, so I started out with like the wood grain Atari 2600 or whatever it is. And um, then I got into the Commodore 64, um, which was like really, really old school. Mm-hmm. And one of the first games that I got for Commodore 64 was this, you know, so games were great. I mean, the thing I love about the Atari 2600 games and like the old school Nintendo games relative to the games they have now is like you really had to have a strong sense of perseverance because they were unforgiving. Right. Um, and because I mean, you just had to it was just a grind and you had to learn timing and and just yeah i mean and perseverance and like if you lost you lost there were no passwords there was no there was nothing like that you couldn't save anything in the cloud so it was just like you started over and i think there's like character built in that right um which i i think could actually be useful yeah no for <laughs> sure to, to, to students but um but yeah i mean one of the games that i really loved for commodore 64 was this game called adventure construction set um, and it like flew off the shelves at a time because it was one of the first games where you could actually design your own role-playing game, right? I mean, it was one of the first things where, I mean, it was very crude um, at the time, but it was one of the first, the first, you know, construction sets that you could use to actually design to control a game and you could like put it out there. And, um, you know, up until that point, like, and they were like graphic interfaces you could use. But up until that point, I was just like toying with like DOS-based text games, right? Like, so I like taught myself how to like program in DOS, which was very easy to do, right? I mean, and you do these these text-based games and it was kind of like the next stage in that choose your own adventure thing. And then, um, you know, the comment with the adventure construction set, I started like building my own games. And that's what I really loved, like sort of more, you know, I, I, I don't think I would ever have the technical proficiency to, to design, to code my own game now. But I really love controlling the dynamics of the game and seeing people enjoy them, learn from them. You know what I mean? And that's that's kind of what I really loved. And then I got into all the video game crazes that we all got into, right? I mean, so there was like Nintendo and PlayStation and all this other stuff. Um, and then so finally, when I started teaching, you know, at the at the undergraduate and graduate levels, um, you know, and, and I think I we, you know, at, at, you know, in, in higher education, I think we have the benefit that we have more latitude, right? Mm-hmm. And the pedagogical tools we can use, whereas you know, um, in K through 12, you know, you, you always teaching to an exam. And so there's not, like you said before, there's not a lot of time to incorporate this kind of stuff. But I think that students love it because especially in, in disciplines like history and in government, I mean, it's, it's can be fairly dry on the page, um, especially for modern, modern audiences and, Mm -hmm. and, um, contemporary students that it really brings things to life for them. Um, and it, it, it demonstrates kind of the ambiguity of the field, right? Um, and it just adds flesh to, to what they're reading. And um, yeah, so that's when I started thinking about using kind of role plays and simulations. And, and again, I mean, you saw in, in the simulation I ran at Brunswick, you know, one of the things I really love doing is, is kind of controlling the parameters of the game, right? Like being sort of the game maker. 
and then turning some of that over to them as well. I mean, so they can right. also change the parameters of the game. So I want them to sort of, you know, feel that same joy, I guess, that I get from doing that. But no, for sure. It, it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of sending out your own godlike power to yeah. them and let them be gods for a moment or whatever, whatever phrasing you want to use. Exactly. No, exactly. that's cool. So did you have other friends who were into the same stuff that you were or like a sibling or something that pushed you into all this? Or did you sort of stumble upon video games and stumble upon choose your adventures, like kind of like on your own? I kind of stumbled on and on my own. I think my, my parents were pretty encouraging of, of me, you know, getting into technology at a really young age. Right. And that was sort of, you know, when I was young, like maybe I, I think I was on a keyboard by the time I was three or four years old. I mean, literally, um, I, you know, I had, I had the Atari, I had the, the Commodore, we had something called Vector Vision at one point. I mean, we just had these, like, I think my father was a big tech geek. Um, you know, he, he didn't go to college himself, but he was just a real tech geek and he really wanted, you know, he kind of saw that this was like the future and he wanted me on. And, you know, he, he the, the, the cost of it was I'd have to do, you know, I'd have to learn typing and actually like learn stuff. Um, on the computer. So like, you know, the, one of the first games he gave me was like Mavis Beacon teaches typing and I'd have to like <laughs> do like the typing lessons and then he'd give me some game time or whatever. But I kind of got into it myself and, um, you know, it was just, you know, I was fascinated by, you know, the, again, the, the, obviously the level of technology at the time, but the creativity involved, the storytelling involved. Um, and, you know, once games started getting into more, you know, that that they were more accessible for you to build or design, that's when I really got got interested in it. But gotcha. Do you still play um video games and things like that, kind of like in your adult life now? Is it something you're still into? So it's interesting because there was there was sort of like a peak, right? So I, you know, and, and that's probably because just because I had kids. And so, you know, there was like so I got into like PlayStation for a while, but you know, games now like are, there's a lot of investment required. Um, they tend to be a lot longer, which I think is facilitated by the new save and cloud features and things like that. They tend to be more designed for multiplayer audiences, which I can't always, you know, keep up with. Um, I mean, I kind of grew up on the single player experience. Um, so I can't really get into the multiplayer experience. Open world games, I really can't get into either because usually I only have a short burst of time where I can play games. So it's like, I need that short burst. I need to accomplish something in the game and I need to move on. And it, and this is kind of like, you know, the modern video games, you really have to invest a lot of time and and it's it's kind of more of a commitment. And then I have to wrestle the controller away from my kids, which is not, you know, it's, it's kind of easier said than done. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's funny. I, I was really into video games as like a kid, like even even into my early 20s, like um, playing games like StarCraft and WarCraft yeah. and, yeah. you know, Command and Conquer, all that stuff. Yeah. But I don't, I, I, I definitely identify with a couple of points you made, like, especially like just about time in general and, and like open world games. Yeah. Like I can, I have friends that are like, you know, still very much into video games and, you know, asking them about some of the games that they play and the things that they describe, it's almost like having another job, yes. you know, like, yeah. like somebody like talking about, Oh, you know, I had to go and do a raid and then I had to go yeah. get these crystals and I went and I had to sell them and then I had to call somebody and, and it sounded like they were going to work. Oh, for, so like, sure. for me, you know what I mean? So for me, it's like, I don't know. I kind of draw the, draw the line there. No, it's like an industry. I mean, there are like XP farms places where like yeah. you can hire people to just grind out XP for you. I mean, it's, it's a little nuts. Like, yeah, I yeah. completely agree. It's, it's yeah. overwhelming. It's almost like, how can we take folks like that and 
it, like channel their energy into like I don't know the climate or something. You no, know I, 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 mean? I like, get it. Yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of like um, you know um, uh, it's it, yeah. I mean it's it's just a big it's a big big investment uh, to get into modern games. Um, and you know my son plays he plays like Minecraft and um, Fortnite and things like that. You know, I've tried playing them, but I'm just like, I guess I'm old school in that sense. Mm -hmm. I also feel like they're really low stakes, you know what I mean? Like, because, you know, there's always this, you know, you can start, you can, you can respawn, you can, you know, it's, it's really, there's not that sense of perseverance that you got from these hellacious games. Like when I was a kid that, you know, you just had to grind it out and memorize patterns and things. like. And I think there, you know, there's, there's a certain discipline and a certain, um, you know, sense of perseverance that you, you get from that. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you've read Ready Player One, right, everybody's kind of like in their, it's like a separate reality for them and they kind of live in that reality. So Yeah, no, totally. And again, um, just sort of like thinking about stories that people have told me about like the different kinds of games they play. But again, like in particular, like when you have kids. So for example, like, and again, you probably know way more about this than I do, but like putting certain cheats in so that your kids can't yeah. die. I, it's right. like, wait, I don't understand. Right. I, I, I like having a conversation with like an eight-year-old being like, I don't understand. Why would you right. play if you can't die? Like, what's yes. the point? And yeah. then, you know, kid just blankly like staring at me as if, I'm asking the kid to like uh, do quantum physics or something. You right. Know? Yeah. And then, well, and then I try to get them in like engaged with some of the games that I played when I was a kid. Right. So, you know, at some point, you know, I got into the, the kind of the more the PC strategy games, but you can imagine the kind of games that I, I would be attracted to. I was into like SimCity and civilization and like all of the different items. You know, so yeah. So Civilization, what a wonderful game! Yes. Absolutely wonderful game. Um, I was playing that in the early two thousands. Yep. Um, and I think it's still going now. I believe. It is. Right? Yeah, it is. Which I haven't played it in a while, but it was one of the first points of bonding that I had with my college roommate. Like we, you know, we met each other, and he was like, "Oh, I was, I was on my like, you know, old school laptop," and and he was like, "What are you playing?" I was like, "Civilization." We both got kind of addicted to it and it became kind of a point of competition between us. Um, like who could build a civilization that would last the longest and, um, you know, and, and would survive and thrive. And so it was, though, but those are the kind of games that I really, I really, and my wife's a city planner. So she was into all those games as well. Like when we were in college and stuff. So it was, there was definitely a competitive thing going on around, you know, SimCity and civilization. But yeah, I just remember like when I first went to college again in the early two thousands, um, being able to network computers together, yeah. you know, and, you know, I can remember, I mean, here, here's the thing though. Let me, uh, let me put a disclaimer out there though, to, if any of my students are listening, don't replicate this, but <laughs> going, going to college and like, you know, my classes were great and everything, but like the idea of playing Starcraft, like team games against all your roommates, it was like one of the most incredible things, which I, I don't think you or I could, express what that was like to kids living in this generation where it's normal yeah. for them you know um, no, it was no, incredible yeah. I and mean, it's just the excitement of it and and it was also like the the the, the speed of evolution and the technology at that time was really, really impressive, right? I mean, so, you know, the the leap from, you know, I was really into Nintendo. So the, the technological leap from, 
you know, the the Super Nintendo Entertainment System to, you know, the 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 GameCube and the, the N64. I mean, it was pretty, like things were happening at a very, very fast pace. Um, and I, like you said, I mean, I can remember being, being late to class, not, not even class, to so a final exam, because um, I was playing um, Legend of Zelda, um, like whatever the one that came, I think it was like, it might've been like Ocarina of Time or something. And it was just, such an exciting time and in, in the technology of gaming that you just it's where you want it to be. Yeah, I, look, I can't tell you because we can make a little transition here talking about education, but like I can't tell you how many times I I've been running a workshop or you know, at one of the conferences I ran or some of the conferences I go to where it's almost like how could we in education replicate that? Meaning, you know, this idea of something being so engaging that you can't walk away from it. If yeah. there's some way to be able to harness some of that in education where, I mean, look, you're not necessarily going to be able to always get kids to feel that way. I mean, like it's still homework, you know, or reading, but like there is that sort of excitement that teachers have been trying to sort of instill within their students, you know, for, you know, forever. And I think games yeah, well, are like, so I, I went in, to a parent you know? teacher conference with my, my daughter. So my daughter's in first grade now. Right. And, you know, they all have their tablets and whatever. And so she showed me this game where, you know, it was it connects to other students in in the community, not just in her class, but just sort of like first grade community across um, New York State, and they can do like these math battles where they like battle each other to, you know, like they they've got a pile of bricks in front of them, and each time they get a math question right, they 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 lob a cannonball, and it's sort of like you know scatter some of the bricks or something like that. So they're they're they are thinking of ways to do stuff like that. I mean. You know the the downside, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like this this gateway into social media and like it's kind of the this this mentality where everybody's so engrossed in in their phones and getting that dopamine hit, right? Every every time you get um, something good on a screen, so there's there's that downside. But I think they really are thinking about um, how to how to sort of like migrate that experience into educational environments um, more intentionally, right. but. Yeah. So making a little, little bit of a transition here. So, okay. So I feel like the audience definitely has a sense of who you are and definitely has a sense of, you know, your real passion for, for different kinds of games. So could you describe that first time or that first moment where you were like, all right, I'm going to gamify something I do in the classroom. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think it sounds like we went to college around the same time, right? And, yes, I and, think you know, so. Like in two thousands, right? So, I I graduated from college in I think two thousand, and so the, the the model of of higher education at that time was um, stage on a stage, right? I mean, you'd have someone come up, they'd give a lecture for an hour, you'd take notes, and and that's kind of that's kind of it, right? And you'd regurgitate all that for an exam, and it never felt like it was bringing anything to life. But I think that was fine because. I think generationally we were disciplined to that kind of pedagogy, right? Um, but as you saw the advent of social media, I think, um, you know, I think, well, two things. So, so first, I think that there's been a generational shift in the way students learn, right? I mean, in the way that, that they're just picking up information, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're picking up most of their information from social media. They're picking up most of their information from the internet. You can debate whether that's good or not. I mean, it's happening. So, so regardless, it's happening. So you mm -hmm. can either fight against it or you can actually adapt to it. And so I think I've chosen to adapt to it. And so, you know, it, it gradually came, you know, I, it became clear that, that that stage on a stage approach was not going to work for me, for my personal teaching style, just because I'm more conversational, even in large classes. I mean, I've taught classes up to like a hundred 
And I just don't feel comfortable with like lecturing people. I just want to have that conversation. I'm a New Yorker. I, I talk like I, I just I like that conversational style. Right. And so I was always looking for ways to kind of like break down that barrier between myself and the students and which is hard to do in a large lecture hall. Right. But um, and so, you know, and and I think so that's one thing I think generationally it, we were required to come up with new approaches that would engage the audience in the way that they were learning. Right. The second thing is it's kind of a disciplinary thing, right? I mean, I you you teach it sounds like in history, I teach in public policy and, and government. You know, these are subjects that can be really dry, right? I mean, when you read them on the page, um, and there's a couple of dangers of that. I mean, the, the the first and most obvious danger is that you lose student, you don't, you're not able to capture their interests, right? I mean, that's 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 an obvious danger. The second obvious danger is is that you know, or maybe it's not so obvious, is that when they read from textbooks, and I think this is probably more prevalent for high school students than for, for college students, when they read a textbook, they think the textbook is a container of truth, right? Um, that that it's sort of unbiased and they're just kind of going through the motions and, and getting to the exam. And this is part of that whole thing about teaching to the exam and, and whatever. And so it's not really apparent to them that everything they're reading should be challenged or, or evaluated critically, right? Um, and so... And, 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 and so that's one thing. And then the discipline itself, like public policy and politics, it can be dry. Um, it can be very biased. Um, but also there's a lot of ambiguity in it, right? I mean, and, and so if you, if you talk about the outcome of a particular piece or that, that a piece of legislation was passed, I mean, you're sort of like, you know, you're, you're, you're making it very hygienic for them in a way that I don't think is productive to their learning. And their practice, right? So, I mean, a lot of our students, they're pre-professional, right? They're going to practice um, in government or, you know, an international organization or nonprofit after they graduate. If you taught from that very hygienic perspective, um, you wouldn't be doing your job, right? So you have to find some way of conveying to them, you know, not only the excitement, so you have to make government cool to them, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, but you also have to convey to them, look, the circumstances that you're going to be working within are going to be very ambiguous, right? You're going to have a lot of stakeholders. You're going to have to balance all of their different interests. Sometimes you'll have too much information. Sometimes you'll have too little information. You know, too much information, you're going to have to parse through it, right, and figure out, you know, what do you have to act on immediately? What can be kicked down the road? Um, too little information, you're going to have to ask the right questions or know what the right questions are to ask. So, um, games, you know, role play simulations really bring that to life for students, right? Um, because essentially you're plunging them into a scenario where, you know, the first rule is that, you know, they have to behave as the stakeholder they're playing would behave and not how they think they should behave. I mean, that's part of the, the challenge, right? Is that they come into it and if I assign them to a stakeholder, like a swatter, a squatter encampment or something, you know, I, I run this simulation on, on a, a water management project in the Mexico City Lake Basin. One of the stakeholder groups are squatters. Another group of stakeholders are kind of middle class elites, right? And so, you know, you have students and they go in and, and the middle class elites and the squatters are much friendlier than they would be in practice, right? So you kind of have to encourage them to behave as the stakeholder they're playing would behave and not how they think they would behave, right? Because that gets at the ambiguity that I think is the real beauty of these role plays and simulations. You're plunging them into this environment. It's constantly involving, right? Um, so there's, you know, that perseverance that I mentioned before that, that I thought was so important um, or that was a real takeaway from those old school Atari, those unforgiving games. So there's that sense of perseverance 
there's that notion of ambiguity that you have to just make sense of this mess, which is just reality, right? And there's also adaptability. I mean, that's why, even though it's a lot of fun to change the parameters of the game, right? I mean, that's that's always fun for them and for me. Um, but it teaches them that you really have to be adaptable. You have to think on your feet um, in a way that's very nonlinear. So that that's really why I think games are, are so useful, both to the, the discipline that I'm teaching in, but then also to this generation of learners. So. Yeah, and what's really awesome about that response and just all of the different points that you sort of made in there, we talk in the modern world so much about learning from varying perspectives and learning what other other perspectives might be, putting yourself into somebody else's shoes. And it's like role playing is perfect for that, yes. you know, because you might have somebody in your classroom that will never, ever, ever know what it's like to be a squatter, right? Yes. Well, now all of a sudden they're kind of thrust into that situation. I've got to think about it, you know? So even there, like, it's just, there's so many layers of learning in these kinds of games and such. It's a fantastic point. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things that we try to encourage students to think about most when they're going into public policy careers, obviously, is empathy, right? Um, you know, if they don't have empathy, I mean, they're going into this career to serve others, to improve lives, right, to do good. And so, you know, and I think that... Um, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm, I might sound the old man here, but like as we hide behind our screens, it's really easy to lose our sense of empathy and our connection to other human beings. And so I think you're 100% correct that it's it's a good way for them to, you know, assume the role of someone else and understand what it means to embody someone with potentially those disadvantages, disadvantages that they might not have had in life. Um, or, you know, right now we're living and working in a very hyper-partisan political environment, What's it like um, to kind of work on the other side of the aisle? And they'll get a sense of like, you know, how do you work in, in these kinds of environments? Where are the negotiating points? It also gets them to see that, you know, when they when they sort of take a step across the aisle, there are points of convergence, right? Um, which is something that we don't often see because, uh, you know, where because of the storytelling in the media and, and, you know, again, because everything is so hyper-partisan, it's hard to see, like, that there are a lot of overlapping goals and, and you know, shared interests um, if you just take a step back and, and kind of, like, you know, sort of empathize and, and understand what, what different perspectives are. So I think you're 100% right. Yeah, you know, the other thing that I was, uh, I'm just thinking about is you would think that in the world that we live in now in which there's no, there's never been a time ever since people have come out of the caves in which we can connect with other people, yet I wonder sometimes if um, people in different, you know, sort of political groups, especially like in the extremes, if they have any sense at all of what it might be like to be one of those other folks that they critique constantly. Or another way we might phrase it would be that they're not even the ones doing the critiquing. It's whatever pundit that they listen to on TV yeah. for entertainment is actually, you know, critiquing. But I do wonder, like, um, what would ever happen if we could get those groups of people together? I don't know. Maybe some of your students might be the folks that would be doing that, I would imagine, right, in terms of public policy yeah, and, it's, and all it's that. It's really hard, right? I mean, it's 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 a zero-sum game right now. It's uh, and, and part of it's, again, the, the mode of communication has changed so dramatically, right? Um, you know, and when I was working in politics, there'd be multiple layers of vetting for each piece of communication that goes out, right? And and now there's not. I mean, everybody just goes on Twitter. It goes right from their brain into the keyboard and and it's out there. And so that doesn't want leave a lot of room for kind of empathetic reflection and like how, you know, what's what's your impact and and how are you storytelling your your message? And so um I think you're right. If you could get those those people in a room and sort of really get them to empathize in that way. 
Um, we might be in a different environment, but it's 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 sort of that's not that's not the reality we're in. But that but that's also why I think these kinds of simulations are good because um, it really they're a very good simulation of what these students are going to encounter in practice. Whereas you know if they read things in a textbook, which again I think are, is very hygienic, they're going to get whipsawed when they get into practice. Like oh my, you know I, I just I can't I can't believe you know um, even over low stakes issues you know, how hyper-partisan and adversarial things are. And so if you can simulate that for them, and even though it's, you know, like at, at Brunswick, even when I do it at Cornell, it's, it's fun, right? I mean, the, the students have fun, but I think that if they reflect on it, you know, and I've, I've gotten this feedback from alumni, right? When they go into practice that, you know, they're doing strategic planning, for example, and they're doing kind of their stakeholder mapping and getting buy-in. And they're like, wow, this really takes a lot longer than I thought it would. And I was like, yeah, but if you read it in a book, like, you know, your strategy book or, you know, the, even the textbooks that I assign on strategic planning, it's very cut and dry. It's very rational. You know, it's, you go from point A to point, but it's it's not, it's very nonlinear. And so games, um, role play simulations really, you know, it gets students and, and professionals into the mindset that you really have to think about contingency. So Yeah, the debrief is so important to any yes. game, you know, Um because you're right, sometimes the kids can get so wrapped up in the fact that it's super fun to take on these yeah. roles and compete with one another. That debrief is so important, you know, to be able to sit down and yeah. say, yeah, I know we just had a lot of fun, but, you know, what what were the sort of, right. uh, what, what skills did we just build or what did we just learn or what was that like? You know, super, right. super, super important, you know? Right. So out of curiosity, because um, I'm sort of picturing this, right? So in, you know, when you're talking public policy, I can imagine, you know, you, you know, and tell me if this sounds correct, but, you know, giving the students an issue of public policy, all of the different school students representing different groups, having to kind of sort through that from that, you know, from whatever perspective, you know, whatever role that they're in. And and the game itself is them trying to kind of push their position forward and work with everybody else to solve the issue, right? Does that sound about like the kinds of stuff that you do? Yeah, so that's so the, the so that's one way to do it. Um, yep. there, there's other so there there's the the Mexico City Lake Basin simulation that I mentioned before. They actually get units of exchange, right? So in, okay. in that one, they all represent different stakeholders. Um, so there's federal politicians, district politicians, um, squatters, middle class elites. There's smallholder farmers, and they all get a briefing packet in advance that kind of gives them a sense of you know, who they are, what are their primary objectives. Um, they get kind of a strategic planning guide, um, which is a set of of kind of pre-session questions that they go over in their groups. Um, just to, you know, what are your interests? You know, what, what groups, what other stakeholder groups do you think you're going to have um, convergent interests with? What groups do you think you're going to have to neutralize or oppose? So it, it kind of provides them with a guide on, on strategic thinking. Um, and then they get two kinds of units. One is political influence, right? Which is kind of like, you know, um, how effective are you in mobilizing votes? Um, mm -hmm. And then the other is money, right? How can you sort of like redistribute financial resources to get what you want? So each group, you know, gets, you know, a different level of, you know, these um, these political units or um, money. Um, and then they exchange, um, you know, they can either exchange with persuasion, right? They can persuade other groups of their perspective, um, or they can actually exchange, you know, votes or money, which is kind of how things work in reality, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, all the, there, so there are some things that that aren't, uh, you know, that, that don't conform to reality, like all these trades have to be public. And, um, you know, and, and so, you know, but they, but you'll see at the end of the game, like where the resources flowed. Um, it also reinforces to them 
kind of what 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 the like as you said before what the perspective is like for stakeholders that don't have you know um mobilization or money right like what does it feel like uh, to be one of the what kinds of what strategies did you have to deploy in order to actually get buy-in from these more powerful stakeholder groups right so that's the typical approach right they would they would all get a briefing packet in advance um and then they'd, they'd have some time strategizing and then i'd open up negotiations um and then i would change the parameters of the simulation um sometimes significantly um so there, there might be um scandal or disease or something i mean and you know, and then in the last couple minutes of the simulation, I turn it over to them to change the parameters, which that's when it gets a little off the rails. But that's that's fun for them, right? Because it goes back to this idea of controlling some of the game. Um, and then there are other game, there are other role plays and simulations that are um, computer based. Mm-hmm. Um, so we worked in the past with uh, the Batten Center for Gaming at UVA, um, mm-hmm. which is um, you know, and and we've we've hosted uh, actually a, a couple years before the COVID nineteen pandemic hit. Um, we we hosted a um, an online simulation where we were a regional host for a bunch of different public policy schools um, that simulated pandemic response. Um, and so each school was assigned to a country with a different profile, different endowments, um, and they kind of let loose, um, a, a, you know, a hypothetical pandemic. Um, and and countries had different policy measures that they could pursue. You know, they could develop a vaccine, they could close their borders. Um, that was about three years before COVID-19 actually hit. Um, and so, you know, as as the students, you know, you could picture this, they were all on teams, they were all on laptops, they would enter in their policy decisions, and then the computer would kind of adjust the parameters and the outcomes of the game, right? And then at the end, um, we had them kind of debrief, as you said, on what their policy choices were, why they chose, you know, those particular decision options. And um, and so you can see, like, even, and if you take that a step further, right, um, you know, with artificial intelligence, you can see the next generation of that type of gaming applied to the public affairs classroom, right, where, you know, you're really engaging in this very dynamic simulation that's that's incorporating, you know, all of this this past, you know, data and and everything, you know, different policy outcomes that have, you know, emerged from similar environments in the past. And it's, it, again, you know, the, the evolution of technology that I mentioned in the past, you know, in the early 2000s with gaming, you know, you can see that we're just on the cusp of that again. So it's pretty exciting to think about, you know, when we did that pandemic crisis management simulation, it was pretty clunky. You know what I mean? It was kind mm-hmm. of online and, you know, well, you know, clear your cachet because things are kind of go- going wonky. But the point was there, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like how you use technology to create these really immersive, interactive, um, and reactive um, simulations that that are meant to simulate kind of the messiness that these students would experience in practice. So it's, that that is one thing that's really exciting to me. Yeah, I wonder what those students were thinking when the pandemic hit. <laughs> the the no, students and, that and were in it, you know, interesting because then we ran it again. So yeah. we we ran it three years before, and that was kind of like you know prospective, and then. You know, we they waited about a year or two, and I was like, "Please don't run this again," because you know, people were affected. Obviously, affected oh, definitely. Personally. Yeah, I mean, I, I have <laughs> a, um, a simulation that I was actually going to run at Brunswick, not around COVID nineteen, but around um, Ebola. Um, mm-hmm. But it, but the dynamics were similar, right? I and mean, because if you remember, about a year before COVID hit, there were cases of Ebola. There were there were healthcare workers that were being repatriated yep. from Africa. With Ebola, yeah, I remember similar dynamics, right? How do we treat this? Like, what are the policy decisions? Um, and so I was like, please, you know, please don't use the pandemic crisis management simulation. And so they waited about a year and a half into 
the pandemic because they thought it would be interesting to hear you know how students would respond now that we've actually lived through this so yeah at my old school um I used to run a game about, I, I taught a unit, a bit, you know, in medieval history about the Black Death, and we used to play a simulation every year about, well, if you had modern knowledge and you got that modern knowledge as like a leader back in the day in a small village, like what would you do? And yeah. what was so funny is like, it was sort of a rite of passage to play that game at my old school. And as the pandemic was kind of, you know, getting underway and such, it was so funny having some of those students come back to me and be like, Mr. F, I don't understand. When we played the, you know, pandemic, you know, simulation, we quarantined people. We did this, we did that. Yep. And they're like, well, why don't people want to do that now? And I'm like, guys, I don't know. I can't. It's messy. <laughs> I, can ex I can explain the past pretty well, but like explaining how people think in the modern world, it's, it's hard, it's you know, it's messy. It is. Yeah. No, yeah. it definitely is. Decision-making. Yep. No, for sure. And then when you add, when you add on top what we were talking about earlier with like, um, you know, the idea of it in such a bizarre way, like Twitter becoming like the most important way yeah. to get sort of information out there in 150 characters. And you don't think about what you're saying as you're saying it. And right. people don't even, again, yeah. we were talking about critical thinking, right? People don't even critically think about whatever they're you know, favorite politician is saying, you know, and it's just a yeah. real tough recipe. And, and then this point about irrational decision-making is really interesting. And that's some of the research that's going on, like in, at Cornell in human ecology and the Brooks School, you know, we have a lot of faculty that are doing research on, you know, this, this notion of rational versus irrational yeah. decision-making. I mean, basically all, all sort of our understanding of economic thought and economic decision-making is based on this notion of rational choice, right? And, right? and frankly, that's built into a lot of these games, right? I mean, and so, you know, what they're looking at, and they're looking at this kind of like from a, um, like a neuroscience perspective, like where they're looking at what goes on in people's brains when they make irrational decisions, right? So they look at things like or health behaviors, like why do people eat McDonald's? Why pe do people start vaping? You know, these kinds of things. So again, going back to this, this sort of next evolution in technology, if you were able to incorporate some of that, because politics is irrational sometimes, and that's why your students are coming back to you, like, I don't understand. Right. Right. I mean, nobody understands. It's just, you, you know, it's irrational thinking and irrational decision-making. But if you can, if you can figure out a way to have artificial intelligence incorporate that in some some fashion into, you know what I mean, into the um, the the algorithms for games. I mean, you know, you're essentially, you know, you're spot on for recreating the public policy environment. Yeah. Well, I'm probably going to talk out of my ass on some level with, on some of these points, just because I'm a layman. Like, I don't I don't teach what you teach. Um, I'm just basing this on things that I've been reading, but it seems like we're sort of at a point, like when we're talking about the idea of being rational versus being irrational, and both parties are sort of guilty of this, right? It, it seems like we're living in a time in which if your quote unquote tribe believe something. I feel like we're living in a time where even if you think some element of what they believe is wrong, you won't say that. Right. You will literally just whatever the party line is, is what I, I believe. And it also seems like people just can't change their opinions that we're exactly, living in a time yeah. where it's almost like some kind of weird, like Moses handing, like, you know, a tablet to you. And it's just like, here, those, those five things are on it. It's like, we gotta, right. we gotta believe that, you know, and yeah, it's and it, a very it's, bizarre time. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, it's human nature. It's, it's ego, right. Compartmentalizing different points of views. How, I mean, how are you able to balance two completely contradictory perspectives? I mean, and there's been a lot of research done on like, why do people vote against their interests, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, 
And so it's and it's because they they sort of compartmentalize their views and they're it's reinforced on social media, which is algorithmic, right? Um, so the the more that you you fall down a rabbit hole, you're just gonna keep going and going and going, right? Um, it's hard to climb out. So so yeah, I mean, I think you're you're spot on with them. So backing up for a moment, um, what is your students' reaction um when they kind of finish one of these simulations in your courses? I mean um, do they feel like they've learned something? Are they happy? Do they ever push back a little bit? What's they never push back. No, they they never push back. And that's one of the things that I, I was really concerned about um, for, for a graduate level audience. I mean, you know, and I've done this with our executive students as well. The executive students have, you know, 16, 20 years of experience. They've done a lot of these kinds of exercises. Like we have a lot of um, veterans in the executive program. So they've done, you know, war games, these kinds of tabletop exercises. And I'm always afraid, are they going to think this is hokey? Are they going to think this is kind of, you know, distracting? Um, they love it. Um, they, they, oh, I mean, when I get my course evaluations, usually um, they always mention, um, you know, role plays and simulations as kind of a high point of the course for them. Um, just because, again, like you said, you're turning over some of that control to them, right? I mean, they're there. And it's also kind of like now it's my opportunity to prove my mettle. Yeah, right? no, for um, sure. As a, nego- as a negotiator, as a decision maker, right? I mean, one thing they always, the, the feedback they always get is that there wasn't enough time, right? Because mm. if you're going to do this well, I mean, you have to, re- like you said, the way I would probably have done it is, you know, do one session for the simulation, one session for planning, one se- session for the simulation, one session for debrief. Like you'd have three sessions. I don't have that kind of time, like even in a higher education environment. Like in a high school environment, you definitely don't have that. So what I do with, with at Brunswick is sort of I, I front load a lot of the material and I, I give it. So I give it to the class in advance. Like I record like kind of mini lectures or whatever that like level sets them so that we can just get right into the simulation and just save a lot of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that it's usually the high point of, of their semester. I mean, like I said, they 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 learn a lot from it. They It really reinforces how messy um, the policy arena is, um, but it, it also allows. So, so the two th- the two critiques I always get is not enough time, right? We want more of this. There, there should be more time devoted to it, and they also want a prize of some kind. Like they want they want to win something. Like, so I got this at Brunswick too, which is funny because my grad students at Cornell asked for the same thing. They, they're like, because I think at Brunswick the the last one the last one I did might have been what what was it? Um, Kimber, there was a tobacco settlement litigation. Um, exercise. I think that's the one that I did last year. Oh, this one was was developing an anti-corruption strategy um, for a country. It was a hypothetical country, but it was a bunch of different stakeholders coming together and negotiating on an anti-corruption strategy, right? A path forward for this country. And so then the, the second day, they kind of present to, to whoever the, the decision-making, you know, the, the decision-maker, whoever had decision rights over what this, um, you know, what this anti-corruption you know, uh, program would look like. Um, and then at the end they were like, well, what do we get? I mean, who won, who won the, the simulation? So I have to think more about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have to, yeah. I'm not sure if that would be counterproductive or if, if that would be cooler, but, um, you know, we can talk to Andy about that, I guess, but it's, yeah. it's sort of, um, those are the two, those are the two pieces of feedback they usually get. They usually always love it. They learn a lot. Um, they always feel like they want more time. Um, which I feel like the time constraint is a good thing because again, it adds that pressure and it adds that that sense of frenzy um, right. to the decision making. But then they also want some kind of a, a prize. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I sometimes do incorporate um, 
you know, certain kinds of victory conditions, you know, beyond, beyond whatever it is like that the individual group is working towards. Like, so for example, one of the, I was thinking a a little bit about this when you were talking earlier about a few of the simulations you do. I do a Medici simulation or I used Mm -hmm. to do it, um, where essentially it's a hypothetical situation where all of the students are representing, you know, different merchant families in Italy during the Renaissance and, somebody behind the back of the Medici family like creates a piece of art that's like considered heretical and all these different families have to kind of sort out what to do. And kind of like you were talking where, you know, each group would have X amount of, you know, political power, X amount of economic power. What I found is kind of interesting is to let those students kind of grow those as sort of time goes on. And like, it's a way of like, almost like keeping track of like who has the biggest voice or who has them. So I just do like little things like that. Um, the other thing that I do sometimes, um, or I say to myself sometimes is as long as the skills that I need the kids to know are being learned in the yeah. simulation, I used to care a lot about time. I don't know how much I do anymore. If yeah. it's a good simulation, yeah. like they're going to, they're, you're going to be able to do all of the same things that you would normally do, except you're doing it in a fun way. Um, yeah, that, the, at least other, that's my take on it. You know? Yeah. The other question I always have is whether or not it would be interesting to build like an extracurricular organization around these kinds of, of role plays or simulation. I mean, I know they do like model UN and things like that. Oh yeah. Um, but, but I, I'm sure there are like competitions you could take students to where, you know, we have policy competitions that we take students to I mean the prizes in those are usually monetary. So when we hosted the NASPA Batten simulation, there was kind of a winner, um, you yeah. know, we had a rubric or whatever, but you know, and, and they there was like a cash prize for the winning team and they went on to a global competition um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's that kind of stuff, but that's cool. Um, Does Cornell have a game club? I'm sure we have a game club. Um, and we, we in the Brooks school have a policy competition team okay. um, that we send out to, you know, we, we've sent them to, we've sent them to Nassau Batten and then, um, Columbia actually runs, um, a cybersecurity competition, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, because you have, you have teams that, you know, they go down to the city and they, they run a hypothetical, um, cybersecurity threat simulation, and um, they bring in kind of from the mayor's office and from the the you know homeland security and FBI, and, and they're kind of the judges, which is very intimidating for students, as you can imagine. Yeah, but I can imagine, it's, yeah. it's interesting because you have policy students that are competing against um, kind of technical schools or engineering schools. So you've you've got like the policy students, the techies, and then you have the service academies, right, who are always thinking about these kinds of things and contingency planning and vulnerability and resilience. Um, so it's very, very cool um, right. simulation. We've sent policy competition teams to um, Dubai. Oh, um, cool. The World Government Summit. Um, they host this summit where um, they they bring different policy schools in from around the world. And there's usually kind of a, you know, a prompt, like what do you see as the next, um, you know, innovative city or cutting edge city in the world and why, or what can, what can Dubai do to, to ensure that it's on, you know, the edge of competitiveness globally, something like that. And then they present to, you know, leadership in the UAE. So it's, we do have a policy competition team and I'm sure that we have um, a gaming club or gaming organization of some kind as well. Yeah. Have you ever been to uh, Connections, that military yeah. sim? Yeah. Cause I, I wonder, um, I wonder if you um, or any of your students would have interest in that. Cause I think that, that is a lot of, um, like those military type simulations, yeah. like, you know, a lot is a lot of, it's not even necessarily military people. It's a lot of, it's like defense department folks, yep. you know, but yep. I know like some schools send students there, kids who know that they're going to kind of get into that kind of line of work and such, you know, it's very cool. And, you know, for that, like I said, I mean, we have a lot of veterans in the program, right. Um, so it'd be great to have them kind of mentor 
you know, the undergraduate students or the grad students, I think it's a really interesting field to get into. And again, having that kind of practitioner mentor relationship is, yeah. I think it'd be really valuable going into that. We actually have, um, like for when we go to the cybersecurity competition, it's a good kind of alumni engagement opportunity. So we, we have contacts that work in cybersecurity, you know, from different places, Homeland Security and Bank of America. So they get all these different perspectives, um, but it's a good opportunity to kind of engage alumni as well. Um, yeah, cool. Very cool. So in, in just in, um, I mean, I feel like I could keep talking, but um, just in the interest of time, um, what do you have going on, uh, you know, this coming semester? I mean, is it all a lot of the same stuff you've been describing or are you doing anything different or? Uh, this coming semester. So um, let's see. So I'm teaching my two classes and then um, one of the classes I'm, I'm taking on a field trek to Costa Rica. Um, oh, so there's cool. a one-week intensive in Costa Rica that I'll be going on um, next year. That that class will um, diverge, right? So I'll be teaching a comparative public management course that'll diverge into one field track in Costa Rica and then one field track in South Korea, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that's, I mean, you know, just tying it into what we're discussing. I mean, so there's, it's all part of this engaged learning portfolio of Cornell, right? I mean, and I think you're seeing a lot of higher education institutions and even Brunswick. I mean, when I talk to some of the students there, I mean, they're always looking for opportunities to get them out of the classroom and get them into real, you know, get them into real life, you know, working with real life organizations or going on site to, you know, observe things firsthand. Um, and so that's kind of the same thing that we're doing at Cornell is, is these two engagements that I've set up in Costa Rica and South Korea you know, we have this the seven week seminar that's that's online. It's it's executive and residential students, and then we go abroad. Um, you know, and and you know each of the different site visits will demonstrate something different, right? I mean, Costa Rica, they're more about sustainability and ecotourism, and South Korea, they're more about public interest technology and artificial intelligence and more urban management and governance. Um, so. You know, it's it's really this push um, as we as there is with gaming, with incorporating gaming into our classrooms to really get students to to think about the messiness of the environments that they're going to be working in um, and to simulate those conditions in kind of a um, a protected environment right into into a low risk environment. I mean, that's really um, the usefulness of both games, right, games in the classroom, but then also these engaged learning experiences where we actually take people into the organizations and the communities that that we're working with and that we're talking about. So oh, that's awesome. Very cool, man. So um, if a listener wanted to reach out to you, like just for more information about what you do or what you do at the Brooks School or just at Cornell in general, if somebody was interested in programming or a job or something along those lines, um, how like what would be the best way that somebody could reach out to you? I mean, is it could you know through through Cornell's website or yeah, by email. So my email is is tjo, um, o, the letter O, 22, at cornell.edu. So tjo22 at cornell.edu. Um, and Jared, on, on any of the stuff for, for the podcast, if you want to post that and share with your audience, that's cool. fine. Um, you know, I, I joke that I've, I haven't left this this virtual library you see behind me. I've been a prisoner <laughs> here since, since the pandemic. So right. I'm always happy to jump on or, um, you know, talk about the program or my work or talk with a fellow gamer. So... No, for sure. And honestly, like even just as you're sort of not to add anything to your plate, but just in in hearing the kind of experience you have, um, 
man, there's so many corporations, there's so many groups out there that are looking for the kind of work that you do and the kind of work that I do, like in terms of like corporate training and professional training, you know? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's never been a better time to be like a person who likes games. Oh, absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, we'll have to talk about some of that stuff offline, you know. Um, All right, cool, man. Well, uh, for everybody out there, I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Uh, Tom, or should say Dr. O'Toole. Um, It was so nice. (laughs) It was so nice having you on, man. Yeah, thank you. Happy gaming, everyone. All right, cool. See you later. I know audience. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening to today's 20-sided Gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore NextGen underscore Inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much. Thank you.